Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. I first encountered Sarah McCary's writing a couple of years ago on the internet. I was immediately taken by her urgent punk and goth aesthetic melded with this raw perspective on contemporary women's writing that is often often left to fend for itself in the margins of mainstream literature. Sarah also writes from a space that comes from more than just having quote, angry or strong feelings, but a profound sense of empathy. Her novels include All Our Pretty Songs, 2013, Dirty Wings, 2014, and About a Girl, forthcoming, 2015, all published by St. Martin's Griffin. Together, these novels encompass the Metamorphosis Trilogy, a series of contemporary retellings of myths that begin with Orpheus, then Persephone, and finally Medea while set to the backdrop of the 90s Pacific Northwest. Sarah is also the founder and editor of Guillotine, a chapbook series that publishes revolutionary nonfiction and which include, just to name a few, Bohan Lewis's Troubleshooting Silence in Arizona, Eve Sedgwick's Censorship and Homophobia, and most recently, Jenny Zhang's Hags. Sarah's writing gives me hope, hope for the death of the institution, hope for love, and hope for the unforeseen future that can only be described as a new, as a new cosmos. Please welcome first-time reader to the Poetry Project, Sarah McCary. Thank you. Will you email that to me so I can put that on my wall when I'm feeling depressed? (laughs) That was a really great introduction. Thank you. Um, Thank you all for coming. And thank you, Christine, for having me. And um, this is not poetry. This is an essay um, that's called How We Die. The Vampire Diaries is an American television show currently in its sixth season. Set in the fictional small town of Mystic Falls, Virginia, it is more or less focused on the trials and tribulations of the Lissom teen Elena Gilbert and Damon and Stefan Salvatore, the 150-year-old vampire brothers who love her. Stefan is of the Edward Cullen school of vampirism, a perennially brooding vegetarian. The taste of human blood sends him into a rampageous tailspin like a buttoned-up banker let loose on Bourbon Street whose virtue and dogged morality is initially posited as a suitable match for Elena's wholesome, earnest cheer. But bourbon swilling, it curbs the yearning for human blood. Scene-stealing, lady-chomping bad boy Damon gets the best clothes, the best lines, and ultimately, the girl. The show rapidly evolves into a sprawling Dickensian epic of improbably operatic plot twists, melodramatic narrative vortices, and supernatural fanfare. Its cast members are transformed at a breakneck pace, pun intended, into witches and warlocks, werewolves and vampire hybrids. They take possession of one another's bodies, chase after an astonishing cornucopia of arcane artifacts, regularly attempt to send one another to hell, and die and come back to life with such metronomic regularity that it is more shocking when a character stays dead than when he or she pops up grinning briskly and sporting yet another vengeance plan or mysterious amulet or insight gained from a sojourn on the other side. It is not a good show, exactly, but it is a consistently surprising one, badly acted but slyly self-aware, and prone to moments of a genius so transcendent it can only be accidental. Like its most obvious predecessor, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it is fundamentally about growing up, but where Buffy is a show about good people doing their best to make the right choices in a world full of monsters, The Vampire Diaries is a show about the glories of a world filled with bad monsters making even worse decisions. I moved from Portland to New York to be a writer six years ago, as the summer was ending and just before my friend Kim was first diagnosed with stage three melanoma. I was gone for her first round of treatment, gone for the five years her cancer was in remission, and gone when a PET scan the day before her 40th birthday revealed that her cancer had returned and metastasized. It is easy to say that Kim was good, but it is also true. Out of all of us, smokers and drunks, cussers, bad livers, suicidal and half mad, 
She was the one who surfed every weekend and ran 40 miles a week, the marathoner, the absurdly healthy grown-up who owned her own house and co-owned the community bike shop where punks and neighborhood kids alike got their tires patched. The summer before Kim was diagnosed with cancer, the summer I left, I kicked all my roommates out of my house and cried a lot and drank too much and sold everything I owned except for the cat and my typewriter and 10 boxes of books. Already that summer, I understood that I was leaving behind a life that I would never return to. I had known my roommates for years, some of them since I was a teenager. After I left, they stopped speaking to me, not just the people I had lived with, but nearly everyone I had known and grown up with and become a person with on that coast. And whose fault it was, I don't know, most likely mine. The last time I saw Kim was also the last time I visited Portland after she had had surgery to remove the lymph nodes in her left leg and her cancer had gone into remission. Hi, New York, look at you, she said, when I went into the bike shop with my new New York clothes and my new New York hair. This was long before anything had started to work out for me here, and I had nothing to show for myself but a shitty apartment I could barely afford and a growing awareness of the possibility of my own failure. She was the only person out of anyone I had known who understood what I needed desperately to have someone see that I was different, that, I had, that what I had lost had been worth it, that I was on my way to bigger things. That night, I went to a potluck with some of the people who had once been my friends. The potluck was awkward, and I thought more than once about leaving with a 20-year-old indie musician I had just met, but I didn't. I would love to show you my record collection, the 20-year-old actually said. I have no idea how old he thought I was. I ate my potato salad, and when my old housemates asked me stiffly how I liked New York, I said, I like it a lot. And then they changed the subject, and I thought about how shitty a person I must be to hate all of them for being happy when what we had once wanted was to be extraordinary. They'd already bought houses, amassed babies and dogs and life partners and gardens and jobs teaching high school. In the two years I'd been gone, they'd turned into adults, and I'd reverted into what I so essentially was, a monster in the shape of a girl. I drank a pint of someone else's whiskey in the hostess's bathroom and played the piano badly with the 20-year-old, and everyone was relieved when I left. It didn't seem possible that Kim could die, and so I assumed she wasn't going to. She had fallen in love since I'd left. She looked radiant and healthy, and so much like herself that just the sight of her behind the counter in the bike shop had restored some faith in me that I didn't know I had abandoned. Kim where she should be. Kim the one person whose happiness I could forgive. A day or two after the potluck, I met her best friend Jonas, and the only ex-roommate who'd still talked to me for a drink. Jonas was uncharacteristically sober, had a new set of dark circles under his eyes. In those final moments before the ubiquity of Facebook, he'd been the one tasked with calling the many people who loved her to tell her the news, the one who'd chaperoned her to the hospital for the course of her treatment. And back then, I think he was the only one of us who understood the shadow that still hung over her, that remission was a word that could easily betray. Five years, she said, she has to make it five years before we know for sure. And I thought, although I did not say, of course she will. We didn't have much else to talk about anymore. I made fun of someone's shoes and watched his face change and understood that I was not the person anyone had thought I was anymore, that I had stopped belonging even before I left. When I lied and said I had to leave, neither of them tried to stop me. I wish I could say I've let go of how easily they let me slip from the family we'd made, but I'm not that kind of girl, not even now. In early episodes of The Vampire Diaries, the vampires refer to a humanity switch, a plot device that begins as a metaphor and is soon changed for the convenience of the narrative into something literal. If the vampires concentrate hard enough, their morality flips off, their compassion and regret, their guilt, their sorrow over the lives they have taken and the friends that have been lost around them, the swath of blood spilled across the decades of their long, long lives. Toward the end of the fourth season, Elena, passive, flat-ironed, shiny-haired, boyfriend-saving Elena, Elena who sleeps in fake lashes and a push-up bra, who gives all of herself all of the time, even once she herself has been transformed into a vampire, loses her brother, the last surviving member of her family. Her grief is so debilitating that Damon urges her to flip the switch on her human feelings, and she does, setting fire to her house with her, brother, with her brother's body inside it, and emerging from the cocoon of her goodness, a stone-hearted mantis. Her vampire swains, anxious to preserve the Elena of yore, desperately seek out a cure that is purported to transform vampires back into humans. But that reverse ugly duckling move is of no interest to the new Elena, 
played by Nina, actress Nina Dobrev with an unprecedented and rapacious glee as she lies, cheats, literally backstabs, attempts to murder her best friend, and rolls her eyes repeatedly at Stefan's insistence that he still loves her, and that if she looks within her heart, she will realize she loves him too. What heart, she says. How easy it would be to be heartless, to live like this undead. Some of us are very selfish people, and sometimes this is a lesson we learn a little too late after we have already train wrecked other people's lives and hopes and hearts, or in this particular case, their houses. We had some good times in that house in Portland, the four of us, before everything went to shit. We stayed up on the front porch drinking whiskey as bikers rode past us all through the summer nights until one by one the stars slid into dawn. We made bread and watched all the good seasons of The Simpsons and fell in love and told each other about it. We threw parties, dance parties, dinner parties, birthday parties, seasonal parties, casserole parties, parties for no reason at all. I don't miss that house, but sometimes I miss that life, which was infinitely less complicated and often a lot more fun than the life I have now. A kid's life, an enviable life, bike rides and popsicles and beers by the river. And in the winter, someone was always making soup and we'd put on our rain gear after dinner and pedal through the downpour to basement shows everybody's sodden wool layers steaming in the corner while we sweated out our tiny sorrows in the circle of each other. But ambition is like a poison and a gift tangled together, and it makes you leave and leave and leave again, leave places, leave people, leave your whole life. Ambition and something else that I don't know how to name, something ruthless and cruel that says only ever, is that a good story? And if the answer is no, it says move on. The best I can hope for is to be good enough to justify how brutal I am. When you are a woman or a girl or female, no one says to you, look, artists who are great take without asking and take and take and do not apologize because when you are a woman or a girl or female, the only thing you are supposed to take is a lot of other people's shit. No one says to you, be sure you are strong enough to keep going when the taking leaves you nothing to go back to. Be sure you are strong enough to steal and live alone with what you've chosen to make yours. The summer I left, I left everything. I left the people I had been friends with since I was 19, and I left the big white house with the sun porch and my piano and a backyard that grew thick with lilac and wild raspberries, a garage with my printing press in it and the cabinets of type I'd spent the last five years collecting. I left the light-up globe the first person I fell in love with gave me and my accordion and the oak dining room table that had been my parents. I left picking strawberries off the vine and driving every other weekend to the ocean, left lazy late nights drinking beer in the park that overlooks the train yard, wondering if anyone I knew was down there trying to hop a ride east. Left the time me and Jimbo rode to St. John's long after the sun had set and walked out on the railroad bridge, climbed down to the pilings with a fifth of bourbon and looked out over the wine-dark river. Overhead, the trains rumbled past one after another, marking the hours until the bottle was gone. Elena setting fire to her house, to the old dead self, but the burn cannot truly erase. The blaze leaves, leaves a scorch in its passing, carbon marking the absence of what once was whole. In October of last year, I found out Kim was dying through Facebook. Jonas, at last, spared the telephone. While I was doing time at a temp job I didn't love but couldn't turn down. Which 90s pop star are you? Which change.org petition are you? Hello, everyone. Well, there is no easy way to say this, but my melanoma has come back and has invaded my lower back and right leg. The cancer is so large in my back that it has broken a vertebra, which has been causing me tremendous pain. The cancer is so large it is inoperable. Therefore, I am settling into the concept that I am at the end of my life. Kathy played Candy Crush. Chris invited you to his poetry reading. Join, maybe, decline. I had been hoping half-heartedly that the temp job would turn into a real job because it had been 10 years since I'd gone to the doctor. So that since I'd known for sure I'd make my rent that month and next month and the months after that. But also the overhead lights in those places, the way they suck the life from your skin, the way you put on clothes you wouldn't wear every morning to pretend you're someone you're not, fooling no one. I couldn't tell anyone at my temp job that Kim was dying so I went into the bathroom at 15 minute intervals and locked myself in a stall and cried and hoped no, one was noticed, hoped no one noticed that the wacky temp was disintegrating visibly at her post despite liberal applications of the $40 concealer she'd drunk dialed off Sephora a couple of weeks previous. After work, I walked into a liquor store and bought a bottle of shitty whiskey, my face a mess of snot and tears, grateful as always to live in a city where the man behind the counter will politely avert his eyes as you sob and ask no questions while he rings you up. I bought a pack of cigarettes for good measure, 
cancer, and sat on my stoop with a mug of the whiskey and chain smoked and cried. And my favorite neighbor, who is old and sick and likes to sit outside in her walker in good weather, came downstairs and offered me her parliaments. I said, no, thank you, I have my own. And she asked me how I was, and I told her that Kim was going to die. Oh, baby, she said, you can't let that hurt you so. I used to worry about dying before I worked in a hospital, she said. And then she told me about cleaning the bodies of the newly dead, and how after a while you get used to the idea that all of us are only mortal, frail sacks of skin and meat and bone straddling the in-between all the time we think we are living. Someone died in this very building, she said, on the fourth floor in that apartment just outside the elevator. And I said, that's my apartment. And she said, oh, me and my big mouth. But I told her I didn't mind, and it was true. It's not ghosts that hurt my heart, not that kind. We didn't bring it up, but she'll die soon too, my neighbor. She told me to come upstairs anytime and watch old movies with her. When it's cold, we can smoke inside the apartment, she said. In the six months it took Kim to die, I watched four seasons of The Vampire Diaries, sometimes three or four episodes in a night, sinking into the abyss of a fictional world where girls learned how to be monsters, how to live with new and unwholesome hungers, how to shuck their old lives like dried out skins, how to keep going when no one you used to love understands what you are anymore, how to bring back the dead. I watched so many episodes that often I'd dream my own alternate versions, plot trajectories in which I flew back to Portland and stood over Kim's hospital bed, slit open my wrist to bring her back to health with the power of my blood. Dreams so vivid, I would wake up and check the, check the GoFundMe page she'd started to raise money for her treatment. Half certain I'd see an update that the cancer had gone into remission again. I was close to finishing my third book and had planned a weekend in Montauk to piece the torn up wreck of it into something resembling a final draft. That morning, my Facebook feed, which Hunger Games character are you, which cat video are you, it is with deep sadness that I announced the passing of Kim Fay. I stood in the train station with no idea any longer of how to find the Long Island Railroad, a train I have taken dozens of times, crying in deep, ugly gasps while people made a careful circuit around me. The first night in the hotel at the beach, I drank until I couldn't shape words anymore, crying so much I thought I might drown. But the next day, I dragged myself out of bed and drew a K on my wrist in black Sharpie and ran six miles under the bright sun, down the beach and back into a cold, hard wind. At the end of my run, I went into the freezing water and thought how unfair it was that I was standing in the ocean when Kim was the one who loved surfing and I can barely swim, when Kim wanted to be alive more than anyone I have ever known, and I have spent so much of my own life trying to die. Some people out walking their dogs waved to me, and I waved back because they didn't know I was still crying. They didn't know Kim had died on Easter Sunday, which is the most metal day I can think of to die. For all they knew, I was just another healthy person out next to the wide blue sea. Look at this body, starved and scarred and poisoned by my own hand, this body that refuses to do anything but keep living. Who is the vampire and who is the disease? Which part is the metaphor? Cancer, notes oncologist Siddhartha Mukherjee in his biography of the disease, is technically speaking immortal. He studies leukemia cells originally taken from a woman who has been dead for 30 years. Cancer is adaptable and innovative, a mobile and persistent and endlessly inventive distortion of the healthy self made possible by the language of our own cells. The monster's body quite literally incorporates fear, desire, anxiety, and fantasy, writes the theorist Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, giving them life in an uncanny independence. The monster is killed, but never fails to return for the sequel. Its ultimate escape is demanded by our culture that produces it. Monsters are the antidotes to the quiet suburban claustrophobia of Mystic Falls, cultured, cosmopolitan, wealthy. Newly turned Caroline is wooed aggressively by the ancient vampire Klaus, who promises to take her from her tiny universe of decade-themed dances and high school classrooms and travel the world with her. And though the monsters behave even more like teenagers than the teenagers do, monsterhood is the path out of adolescence and into the realm of the self-sufficient. In June, on her birthday, coincidentally four days after mine, Kim's family and friends held a memorial for her. I told myself I couldn't afford the plane ticket, an excuse I saw right through. In my contempt for the city and the self I'd left behind, I'd given up the right to grieve her with the people who'd also loved her, and so I grieved her alone. Her loss was borne by so many, and still in this telling, I put myself at her story's heart. In the end, there is nothing quite so monstrous as a human being. 
Kim's Facebook page is still up. Post ta posts tagged with her name filtering into my feed from time to time, ghosts of her image that appear at random and disappear again as quickly. I remember her laugh and the bright honeyed spill of her hair. I remember her hands smeared with bike grease. And I remember how she always came late to our parties and left early, and how much we always wished she would stay. I remember the Valentine's Day eight years, eight years ago, when both of us, recently and badly left by people we'd loved for nearly a decade, locked the door of the bike shop and drank whiskey behind the counter, forming an impromptu Broken Hearts Club of two, with the junior mechanic, our cheery, cheery lieutenant, promising us we'd find love again, and his rescue pit bull making adoring circles at our feet. I remember Kim as the best thing about the city I left, the brightest point on a map of a country to which I can no longer travel. In The Descent, the 34th episode of The Vampire Diaries, thanks to a series of events that is too complicated to relate here, Elena waits in Damon's mansion with Rose, a vampire who has been fatally bitten by a werewolf. The oldest of vampires is hunting them. Though Damon races to find a cure, Rose's chances are not good. Elena, ever the optimist, promises Rose protection, promises Rose that everything will be okay. Sweating with fever in Damon's bed, Rose moves in and out of consciousness, sometimes mistaking Elena for someone else. When you live long enough, Rose says, everything disappears. So much time wasted. I just wish I wouldn't have been so afraid. You're not going to die, Elena tells her. Oh, Elena, Rose says, that's such a human thing to say. There is something queer and saintly happening in Sade Murphy's poetry, something that evokes the religious ecstasy of Simone Weil, something that heaves. In her debut collection of poems, Dream Machine, published by Cohen Press, uh, which has, is out, you can order it online, yes. The reader embarks on a journey through the dizzying extremes of fires and rainbows, domestic guts, mortal sins, and an unspeakable force that om, om, ominously goes by the name him. She writes, my hands pruned in the sun like blowjobs on pagan Christmas. A disturbing old sea dog gnaws at an alarm clock. Higher education won't equal us. My heart is the Queen Elizabeth. Shade Murphy was born and raised in Houston, Texas. She attended the University of Notre Dame and graduated with a bachelor's in studio art. Her studio practice is focused in book arts, printmaking, silk painting, and installation. In 2011, she received a fellowship from the Pavlis Foundation to complete a month-long residency at the Vermont Studio Center. Her poetry has been published in Action Yes, Joint, Revolver, and Lit. She currently resides in South Bend, Indiana, where she makes art and serves as the artist-in-residence at Dismas House, a community focused on the re-entry of the formerly incarcerated. Please welcome another first-time reader to the project, Shade Murphy. I was like, wait, something's not right. <laughs> oh gosh, oh, I should have thought about that. This is uh, <laughs> this is a um, book trailer that was made by Paul Cunningham, um, one of my good friends and also an amazing poet in his own right. And yeah, so. We're gonna show this to you, perhaps. Your heart may 
What would it take to make you denounce what you worship? Your shiny electronics, your affected personality, the music and art you pretend to understand. I'm not Madonna, and I'm not the Madonna. Let me take you to your beach house on Lake Michigan. Make you watch as I burn it to the ground. start for you guys. Um, Dream machine. Dream. Noun. Dream. A train of thoughts, images, or fancies passing through the mind during sleep. A vision during sleep. The state in which this occurs. Machine, noun, machine. A structure. It's nine o'clock. <laughs> A structure. 
Fantastic. Okay. A structure regarded as functioning as an independent living body without mechanical involvement, a material or immaterial structure, a scheme or plot, anything that transmits force or directs its application. Are you guys hearing me okay? Is it doing anything weird? Okay. So, um, I did a reading like alongside this musician friend of mine in October, and like it was in South Bend, so it's really different because it's like South Bend, it's Midwest, like it's very conservative and like, meh. Um, <laughs> so, um, I really kind of had to think hard about like what to read to them, but then I was like, why am I trying to censor myself? Whatever. So I don't imagine that, I didn't imagine that I would have to do the same thing tonight. So I hope you're ready. <laughs> One. The bared soles of my feet told me the devil would snatch me into hell. Under the bed does not exist when the matter sleep on the floor. Why are you ramming my face into my fist? I was fine and this dream is a gleaming down the drain. It is a washed up letter in a bottle, baby, trashy, dopey, siren song cooing. Remember me, the fetal lover you cradle within your skull. I am destroying you. The remains, 377. The remains increase unstably. There is no hope of reemerging. One only travels further, forward, deeper still. I worry over the end. Is it a magmatized core I'm strangling towards? Is it a perpendicular horizon mist? Will I approach my own pupil membrane with a cellophane lens? The waking is weary. Some quadrants are cruel. A hill ripe with dandelions and rock crystal lollies. The sunniest mound. Small girls are raped behind a portable blackboard and disregarded. They play with dolls that have no eyes. Their sweaters catch perfume fire threatening their stiff spritz curls. Sorry guys, I'm having some difficulty up here. Okay. 15. The sun did not barrel through my window like a freight train. While it crouched behind the clouds, the skin covered with hair tightened and madly acupunctured. I told my mother, I told her, shrieking as she foisted me upon that pussing wounded nightmare man. In Arabic, I, runaway, pitched myself into ditch and days and milk that was spoiled half and half. The best and worst delayed hangover, hungover, grade A, grade Day. If this is what you call mourning, I don't want to know who you would call a slut. Probably some saint. Zero. Just when I am ready to forget, him resurfaces. Him tries to make nice. 
Him has shirts made out of my favorite popcorn. Him room is a tangle of unmitigated yarn. I take a machete to him, love letters and wonder. Him says to me, mocking, look how far you've come, baby. Him is wild, hairy, untoned, but not even in my dream could I leave him at the altar. By accidents we kiss, we neck until I feel an itch in my eardrum eyelid, twitches like a fire ant, struck me like a match. Reduced to Cinderella by him, lips tremble, ashy wet nursing, left with one a stigmata night vision eye, writhing in angst just the way I like. I wake up so hungry, I forget what day it is. Three. I woke up damn near in tears. I felt like a startled infant who would not quit crying. I had not started, was stuck like a television between channels on shrooms, crawling between the walls. All I remember was him and the nightmare man had the same twisted, burned down black face. As I stumbled to the surface of consciousness, the last thing, the first thing after gasping awake, no. The images are chained to that man's land, the elephant graveyard of my brain, the cling to, the dried marrow in the bones, suckling what is already anemic. I am not your melancholy baby or an atomic sex bomb ready to demolish God's spoiled children. In a swooping fell my mood, my rare sapphire sickled into soul, my beat is splintered. I walk on shards, leafing a loping trail of sap and blood. Nine hundred and ninety seven. The herd of pigs and Civil War general chased me into the concentration camp. I hate modern art. I found the camps immoral hills of dead eyes. The refusal to dignify them with a burial is to piss in the face of crucified Christ. What if their names were written in elephant dung across the Atacama? What if I rubbed your face in it? What if I fondled your 11-year-old breasts at the kitchen sink? What if I broke into your home and raped you while wearing a ski mask? What would it take to make you denounce what you worship? Your shiny electronics, your affected personality, the music and art you pretend to understand. I'm not Madonna, and I'm not the Madonna. Let me take you to your beach house on Lake Michigan, make you watch as I burn it to the ground, while I force feed you sand and pelt you with white pine needles. Let me take you to your favorite store and refuse to buy you anything. I just want to hear you say it. Baby, you know I love you. Three hundred and sixty-nine. I'm going to learn to kill you with my hands. I'll take an ornate blade or a weighted knife. I'll penetrate your throat, thrust, quick pull, spurt, slow, gushy, mud blood, goo. Coo, my little dove, my pigeon bear. I'll glove you sanguine over my knuckles for heat. Oh, you're a treat, turkey, flipped chicken feet, lynched and swinging god. I'll pluck you finger-licking gay. I'll nake you down to the goose pimples. I'll scalpel you. I'll finger your lily liver and giblet bone. Play your ribcage like a ten-drum xylophone. Nine, does it turn you on? Do you like it? You've got the best mouth.
I like those tits. You married? Please don't tell me you don't got a boyfriend. Where's your man? Have you ever been in love? Come here. You don't have to pee. It's supposed to feel that way. Promise me. If you tell, we'll get in trouble. If you ever want to touch it, don't use your teeth. Did you? I had a dream we went to the movies. She told me she was always jealous of you. I want you. I want you still. I love you. Don't you need love too? Unless you don't want to be loved. Can I call you sometime? I can't get your number. What's your name, baby? Stuck up bitch. Fat bitch. Dumb bitch. Black bitch. What if I told you I desired you a different way? I was a professional wrestler. I wrestled against Mickey Rourke. I kept winning. I defeated all opponents, all men. Trained in the Brazilian martial arts, I was unstoppable. If you crossed me, I would nail your sack to the floor and set the whole house on fire, leaving you with a rusty butter knife. At day's end, I would drink my beer through a straw while, while stroking the peel of a straight banana. Eight. Mama, did I ram you like a calf anxious to flow the milk? Was I too hungry for you? Could you smell the matricide on my baby breath? Oh, but I love you like a trash bin in the wind spewing rancid garage meat, mothballs, and gin-soaked panties. In a room with acetone strips, cerulean felt for carpet, I strangle you, but you won't die. You're the queen of the penis pendulum. You're a pseudo-xenophile with your porcupine prison warden and your nylon merkin. If only I was brave enough to slice open your lymphoma, to vomit inside your jack-o'-lantern shit grin, to push you through my womb and make you mine. I'd have you drawn in catard, diasporate all the pieces of you that too closely resemble mine. Don't you want the best for me? Let me watch you die. Three hundred and eleven. I put my babies in a feather crib. Mama, mama, they timpani, they trill, they gargoyle. When will the dog kill the Indian? Only if malefic visions of the past erupt and people jump from concave mulch bridges. Gather round my pussy willows, I'm going to tickle you. I want to watch you vomit laughter until your corneas burst and fizzle. Shut up. Now the sound of your existence is like a fork dragging along aluminum. I could have aborted you when I had the chance. 21. I clad him chest in fish scale pants. 
Just out of the closet as a homo sapiosexual, I had a mutiny on my hands. Him dances to me across a hexagonal vast tangent. Him blush, but all I do is keep my legs shut and penis starved. Him leech, him creep, him cheap, him cast a die all to asteroid my pumice camel and lance my crass kitsch. Him is a window sigh. Him is a transparent cyanide knot. Him hunts for me in truncated breezes and earthquake aftertastes. I feed him tuna on sunlit foil thrush. Him makes me feel amputated blue. I binge on mausoleum screams. I lose myself in swarms of guttural color. Him won't think to find me in a clean rote amen. Six. This time in the subway, huddled with the puddles and all the leakage and the dripping, like a cave, like vaginal, like this is how we are born, like this is how I will die, invisible except to the strung out ebony pearl masturbatory sleepwalker, stale urine, crammed saltines, but juice tepid. Vermont was still in my shoes, mangled with the New York rain, and I never dried under the turquoise and purple stained class of passengers until joy smiled down on me. Seven hundred and eighty nine. The pipes were flooding the abandoned mall and this woman in rags, this bag lady just kept screaming at me and obscene and with a fire hose and with dogs and the wet dog smell left me gagging and cast away in middle America. I was stranded and I could not go down the escalator. I was scared. There were no stairs. Joan Crawford was after me alone. Thirty-one. You came to visit me, barely in the door before our John Quills joined the musicality of ice melting, ink timidly disintegrating. I take pleasure in the pinch of the underwire. I felt all amethyst and emeralded. I let the silence slide in the damp steel beneath my equestrian socks. You broached my Ignatian legs and we traveled a skeleton grove of prayers. I've never held your canary, but I imagine how your innards. You hold me like a bloodstone and I just want to inhale you like cocaine cut with sweat. I keep my virtue close, but my vices closer. One hundred and forty-four. The hoodoo ghosts hijack the dream. I bolt up bolster each time. I count the feathers and the corks in the numinous bowl, sit on the edge of the bed. They wait for me, painting as a pastime from sewing menstrual cramps into baked tongues. I sneak so coots at the ineluctable mirror. I duck lib the rug with my toes. I hear the dirt death gurgle grudging through the negative space. I hear the death rattle inside my esophagus. The heartbeat rapid rabid flesh about the snap neck. The air couldn't filter into the keprol lung or the incepted dream. I hear it crunching on my tendons. I haven't been clinomanic for some time. Abracadabra can't save me now. Fifty-five. Welcome to the dispersed air glimmered with diseases. Crows aghast, waterways away to the Himalayas. The new sewage age entombed off the map. 
soured, slid, belligerent. Emboldened adventure language shot out naked rats. Monsters skittered their marbles to glue, found Wall Street in West Virginia. Travelers plink and blam their pants, suspected steam circled, clawed, gummy carnival critters. Trumped up wings diatribe, so it clones. You go and behold a moth. I have three more poems and then <laughs> wrap things up. 521. The sky heavy gloom could not erupt, picking its way through the room I'm writing in. Window is too opaque for streetlight single glow. Silence leaves you longing, keeps you voice. But I want the concomitant, pristine chaos of the forest before the flames. The spent day storm never came, but I want to tower over the trees, to nibble their parsley, montageous tippy tops. Lazarus ruined dirt, dared to flourish ochre mother's milk. But I render the bone soil parrot shrill. I bask in the ashes. I need to be the smoke that thunders. I need to return to the volcano of my genesis. One. I will waste time dreaming. I will confront the broken men mess. I, I can wheel unsteady. I ape ear the spring equinox. I must jail sentence. I wonder how resisting the pressure juxtaposed. I sense interplay unfinessed. I have the cameras moving trained any muscle. I clung like thirst. I prefer my feather inside the world. I saw blindness erase the swaying wonder. I bartled be talking about anything. I wanted the sprightly. I feel here. I'm not. I cling to these words. Six. Do not pretend that you do not know how to sleep purely for the dream. Do not ignore the moon streaming high-speed light into your window. Do not deny wishing that you were not sleeping alone. Do not fear the boogeyman. He is no more real than the lover born in the depths of your dreams. Do not seek to control the way you do in waking life for you will only ruin what prophecy you may receive. Do not knot yourself up over the meaning. Let it instead fall through your fingers like sand. Thank you guys. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.